great pleasure to welcome you to UCL, and particularly because it's a book launch of my book, but also because this is the first time I think I have ever used this room since it's been refurbished and come into the ownership of the IAS, so this is the first for me to even find out what the room feels like. But you're all very welcome here. The way we're going to do it is as follows. We have three wonderful colleagues here, Nick Stargard from Oxford, Jane Kaplan from Oxford, and Miss Harvey from Nottingham who are going to discuss the book, but I will briefly introduce it first so that you've got some idea of what's in it before they can launch in to raise point for the discussion. Um, and then when we've had a little discussion among ourselves, we'll open it up to you to also enter into the discussion. And at the end, there will be drinks, which um, I hope everybody will want to stay for and chat to each other informally. So this is a great opportunity. Let me just briefly introduce the book. And I'm going to introduce it backwards. Um, it's, as you can see, it's a very fat book. It's in three parts. And it was a beast to write. It was the most difficult book I have ever written. And I really did not enjoy it. And I think that was not only because I was also trying to be Dean at the same time as writing a book, but because it is just a ghastly subject and an enormous subject and a subject which you feel you can't possibly do justice to. And yet you feel you have a duty to say something and you have a duty to try and understand it. So if I can just take you through some of the things that I tried to bring out in the book briefly. Um, I was interested in the long-term reverberations of the Nazi past. Can everyone hear me at the back? I don't, I don't know what the acoustics are like. Okay. Um, I was interested particularly in the long-term reverberations of the Nazi past. We today are living in a world in which the word Holocaust has got this expanded, enormous meaning. There can be very few people in the, the Western world, at least, who don't use that word in some way as a kind of point of reference. And um, there are particular communities who identify very strongly with this past, are very affected by this past, most obviously Jewish communities around the world, and Germans, the children, the grandchildren of the perpetrators, who feel that somehow the legacies of what the Nazis did has affected their own sense of collective identity, their own moral responsibility and ways of living in the world. So it seemed to me the reverberations are enormous, and much of the stuff that's been written about the Holocaust is very much in terms of specific representations. How is it represented in films or works of literature, you know, different kinds of cultural representations. And I was interested also in trying to get at something that's much harder to get your head around, the reverberations within people, the legacies for people who are affected by it, whether they're second generation children of survivors, about whom there's been a lot of work done, or whether they're second generation children of perpetrators, which is a much more a much less explored area, but one that's recently been coming increasingly to the fore as children of people either known perpetrators, if they knew what their parents or grandparents had done, or indeed not knowing, but being nervous about it, not wanting to find out, being scared of finding out, or becoming obsessive and digging away, and one member of the family digging and digging, and other members of the family saying, don't dirty the nest, you know, keep quiet, keep away from that, and then the suppressed secrets. And the ways in which these second and third generations come together with each other, the way in which there are attempts at forming contacts between these different communities. So that this kind of thing 
interested me um, a lot. But the more I dug around and the more I looked at particularly survivor accounts and survivors from a range of different groups, so uh, not merely the straightforward survivors of camps who were deported, ghettoized, put in camps or sent to forced labour because they were Jewish, but also people like gay men, um, homosexuals, or Roma and Zinti, or Jehovah's Witnesses, um, or victims of the so-called misnamed euthanasia killings of the mentally and physically disabled. The more I started exploring those groups, the more I had a rising sense of injustice that some groups had only been recognised so late and so partially, and there'd been to some extent a kind of hierarchy of victims. You weren't as much a victim as my parents were, or whatever, you know. Only if you'd really been through the full gamut of camps were you seriously a survivor. If you were just a gay man who'd been sent to Flossenburg and used as target practice and having to lug granite blocks around until you dropped and you were too weak and then you were shot dead, were you really a victim of the Holocaust? You were dead, but, you know, were you... So this, I got a, a real sense that there is some huge inequity here and um, not that I would want to put everything into the same basket. I feel we do need differentiation, we do need historical precision in analysing this but the more I explored it the more the injustice question came to my mind and then I meant just to write one chapter about trials um, that one chapter turned into part two of the book, um, and it could have been a book in itself. I at various times thought <coughs> I'd write a separate book about trials, because the, I was going to just trot through the, the story that we all know, you know, then there was the Nuremberg Tribunal, and then there was a bit of this and that, and then it all died down, and then there was Eichmann and Auschwitz, and, you know, the, the, the standard story that you can get into a single chapter. Then. But the more I read <coughs> it, it fascinated me what didn't happen or what happened more in some places than others. So which groups managed to evade justice systematically? Um, those groups, those professional groups largely, the judiciary, the civil service, the higher echelons of the medical profession, managed to get away with not being brought to trial. And the notion of who was a perpetrator narrowed ever more and more to SS guards, thugs, and preferably dead high Nazis, you know, the Hitler, Himmler, Heydrich characters, um, all dead. They were seriously responsible. Everybody else was just obeying orders. Um, so that, that problem, the topography of failure to bring to trial, bothered me. And the differences between different states became ever more clear. One of the things I did in the book was to pull out particular case studies, and I took a little known <coughs> place in Poland called Mialets, and apologies, my Polish pronunciation is probably entirely wrong on that, but Mialets fascinated me, and I tried to take some perpetrators from there and trace their post-war lives, as well as looking at <coughs> victims from there and their post-war lives. And I took three perpetrators in particular, the two who were in charge of the Gestapo HQ in Mialets, who gave the orders to kill, and one of their underlings, a local ethnic German who spoke perfect Polish, had grown up there, and who acted first as their interpreter, and then acted as the guy who went out and took the orders to kill. So he shot, he pulled Jews together into little groups and took them out to the forest and lined them up in front of the, the pit that they'd dug and shot them into it, and then got himself mighty drunk afterwards because he couldn't bear it. 
Um, he was the one perpetrator I found who seemed to have a seriously guilty conscience after the war. He was brought to trial in East Germany. He confessed everything and some. He said he'd been longing to get it off his chest and that he'd been thinking of turning himself in, but he had a wife and children to worry about and to consider. But he had, in the meantime, become a very good GDR citizen, um, joined all the classic East German communist organisations, a really good father, good man, good communist to all outward appearances, and inwardly was agonised about what he'd done. And his trial really got to me. I read through the files in Berlin in the Bundesarchiv, and I got, I, I got a sense of... I'm almost feeling sorry for this guy, you know, a semi-literate, not terribly well-educated, ethnic German Pole who'd suddenly got too big for his boots when he was stuck in a uniform and he was somebody suddenly when the Nazis came in and then had got pulled into doing something that he knew he shouldn't be doing and shouldn't have done. So, very sad story. He was sentenced to life imprisonment and he in fact died in an East German prison in December 88, so he didn't even see the vendor, he didn't see the fall of the war. His two superiors who went to West Germany, one was never brought to trial at all. Not at all. I have no idea why. I just find in the files that, you know, he wasn't brought to trial. The other one um, made the mistake of working in the Freiburg court. He was working in a court of justice. And this was a little bit embarrassing for the court to have somebody who was guilty of clearly ordering mass murder, working in the court. Um, so he was brought to trial, but he was given, in comparison to his underling, what I think is a relatively lenient sentence. And this was a man which, or oh, this was a case which really brought home to me how difficult justice was in that era in West Germany, because the judge in his trial, this, this was the thing that really floored me about it, the judge in his trial said in the summing up, um, he showed humanity because he was having an affair with a Jewess. This was racial, you know, crossing the racial boundary. It was utterly impossible to do. When he was afraid that this would be found out, that his girlfriend was Jewish, he took her out into the forest, and this is where he showed the humanity. He didn't let her know beforehand, but he shot her dead in the back of the neck. You know, what humanity is that? Not to warn your victim, you're about to murder them. I mean... Goodness, but this was a judge in West Germany who who's had sympathy with this perpetrator and thought it was humane not to warn your murder victim that you're about to murder them. It, quite extraordinary. So I my chapter on trials expanded because once you start writing about a case study in detail, you then have to expand everything else to make it proportionate still. You know, you can't kind of leave the Auschwitz trial in a paragraph when you've got a whole chapter about Mielet's three perpetrators. So that was part two. Then part one, I think what I was trying to get at in part one, which again was going to be only one chapter and then expanded to become part one, um, was the way in which this all happened at the time, to try and draw out some facets of experience, to try and make it understandable through individual case studies, <coughs> individual stories, individual experiences, not only how it was understandable that you become victim in different ways and drawing out the range of victims but also the incredible division of labour in the system that became a system that allowed mass murder so that people could become part of the system 
without feeling responsible for what it was they were doing. And ultimately, the outcome was what we know, the death camps, the Einsatzgruppen and so on. So part one was sort of laying the groundwork, but also, and trying to establish some of the stories, but also trying to understand that, that bigger system. So that, in a nutshell, is the book, pretty much in the order in which I wrote it, rather than the order in which readers will read it. Because I think a backwards chronology is fine when you're thinking about it, but a forwards chronology is the way we live through time and the way it's easier to read books through time. So I'll turn over to the panel to discuss it. Okay, well, we agreed um, that I'd go first because I wanted to say something which actually perfectly balances what you've just been talking about. Um, I'm not surprised to hear you say that this was an incredibly difficult book for you to write and that you hated uh, writing it because my first set of notes begin by their, their headline, Mary, Mary's Anguish and Dilemma. And the dilemmas of writing it, and the anguish that, in some senses, um, you're writing about injustices which are so huge that there's never going to be any commensurable um, uh, 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 rec recompense or, or um, making good for them. And in, fa in fact, I think the book ends on a on a note which sort of, in a, in a strange way, recognises that. But maybe we can come back to that. Um, so, I mean, that that. The, the situation you describe, or the, or the dilemma that you describe, is that everybody has been left, including historians, I think, um, in this um, ethical and juridical and historical abyss, because whatever we do will never seem adequate to make, um, make, make the crimes good. Um, and I think your sense of, I mean, the sense of what you describe as injustice, and which I would, as I say, take a bit little further to anguish and almost despair in some senses, that it's beyond, beyond judgment, but yet we have a duty to grapple at it grapple with it. And what you said about the book is very interesting because I think um, there's at least one person in this audience, and you know who you are, who knows um, uh, Mary's other books, okay? You were just signing a few copies for somebody. And I think, there you are, I think that there's a way that the last two or three books that you've done are building up to this. And I don't mean teleologically to say, well, you knew where you were going, but the things that you've been talking about um, are present in in a couple of earlier books um, you've written since um, 2011, and I don't mean to give a sort of historiographical uh, boundary, but I think it's sort of helpful um, to that you already had a lot of the sort of mechanics of what you were what you described about about experience and about um, the um, what what we what we owe to this period to try to understand it in terms of a whole range of motivations as well as structures. And for those who, who, who are not so familiar with, um, um, with, with uh, Mary's earlier publications, um, in 2011, you wrote a book called Dissonant Lies, Generations and Violence Through the German Dictatorships. And at that, in, in that book, you, you, you um, um, proposed the concept of the inner eye, the way, and which I think, of course, that your man from Milta had in some senses, which is that his inner eye knew what he had done, but his outer life had a completely different um, framework to it. And, and you describe that as sort of looking for a subjective history from within. Um, and then you, you, you enlarge it into trying to, into thinking about what you call the history of the social, a social self, um, which is not the self as formed in society, but the self which is actually accessible through, in fact, very private sorts of sources like diaries and letters or ego documents, which allow you to know what is going on inside people. And I think this book, in, in all kinds of ways, is working very hard to find out what goes on inside people. And that's the... And that seemed to me to be, as well as the, the it, it's a form of justice which is not part of the um, 
of the British judicial system, although it is, for example, the French judicial system, that you try to, to you know, the, um, the prosecutorial, the, the investigative judge, tries to find out what motives are and what, what um, produces a, a criminal act. Um, um, and then in, in another book that, that you wrote a few years ago, A Small Town Near Auschwitz, seems to me to take this even further. And um, that's a book that I reviewed and that I read um, rather, rather carefully. And that, I think, had a similar kind of um, uh, impulse to try to understand um, the subject of the book, who was a, a bureaucrat, a quite an important bureaucrat in the, in the provincial local administration. Uh, and the title of the book, A Small Town Near Auschwitz, gives you the story that his base is a small town near Auschwitz. And as an administrator, a local administrator, he's got a finger in every pie, okay? Even, but he's not directly involved in arranging de um, deportations and things. He's doing the backroom work for it to make sure that it's coordinated, that transports are organized, and that um, uh, you, know, you know when people are going to leave, and all kinds of different things like that. And he's therefore working with the people who are actually uh, closer to the criminality of... Um, of, of Auschwitz. He emerges not totally unscathed, but pretty much unscathed from um, his, his um, uh, work during the war. Um, but it's also important, if I can say this, I mean, this is part of public knowledge, that what was so crushing for you was that he was, he, he was married to your godmother. And so suddenly, in the family circle, here is somebody who you knew in one way, who suddenly is revealed to you much later as someone who had a life that you knew nothing about. And that life was the life also of, an, of a refusal to really ever confront, not only that he wasn't brought to justice, um, but that he refused himself to um, confront, the, confront the crimes. And there was a phrase that he used about himself um, in his sort of um, self-defense that he wrote in his attempt to sort of assess his life, um, that in terms of what he was willing to concede or not concede, um, of his knowledge of what was going on all around him, because he's a, he really is in the middle of all this stuff, that he, 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 you, could, you, may want, you may be able to tell the uh, participants here a bit more about this, but he used this incredibly telling phrase in which he said that um, he did not want to become innocently guilty, unschuldig, schuldig werden. And so he's, to be, he didn't want to become innocently guilt, guilty or guiltlessly guilty. It's a very complicated phrase, attesting to, to a, a, a state of mind which is extraordinarily difficult to penetrate. And in some ways, I mean, reckonings is the, um, to my mind, is the culmination. Or not, no, no, that's not quite the culmination, because I'm sure you've got many other books in you. But it's a... And, and also Write good. Yes, be careful. Just before we retire. No, no, no. But, but, um, but, but I think that, that, that I can see the lineage of this book in these previous books, even though it may not be, um, you know, entirely willed or entirely intentional. And reading the three together, I think, is a very powerful experience. Um, I, I mean, I certainly found the beginning of this book, which is, an, which is 120 pages of relentless accounts of violence, of what you call state-sponsored violence, and it's an important concept, state-sponsored violence, and maybe the others will talk about that. But it, it, it is... I mean, for those of us who work in this field professionally, we don't want to read another account of it, do we? And so reading it is, is agonizing. Um, and it's an agony which we think we can spare ourselves. You're very insistent that we can't spare ourselves, that we've got to, we've got to know what the it is that we're talking about. And that it is, is unimaginable pain, suffering, loss, and depravity. And we have to understand that before we can go on to um, 
um, to the next bits. And, and it's not surprising, it's just on a, a, a final note, it's not surprising that, um, that when, when, you're, when, when, the, when the perpetrators are addressing that kind of past and that kind of engagement, it's not surprising in the way that the work of repression is so massively um, you know, dispersed, skewed, that it has, and the, the pressure towards retaining some kind of, of, of distancing normality must be huge because you, you can't accept the enormity of what you've done. Um, and I do think, I mean, I, you know, it, it's a troubling thought. I mean, you end by saying the very last um, sentence of the book, um, which is the sort of why we should be doing this. You end by saying, by exploring the legacies of the Nazi past in this way, we can begin to understand the immensity of the upheavals that not only shaped the last century, but also continue to shape our present and ourselves. And I, I'm just wondering, at some point, I'd like you to say more about that, because in some ways, most of us are outside this, okay? So the ourselves is, is not the people who are in this book, for most of us. I mean, there will be people who read this book who are members of the different communities of experience that you talk about. But I, I can't quite relate that conclusion to, um, to, the, to what's gone on in the book, or to who, what, what I should be taking from it in some respect, because the... Well, I'll just leave it at that. I mean, because there are so many ways in which we can think about those upheavals, and upheavals may be the word that's that's difficult to sort of parse in that in that context. Um, because for me, in some senses, the truths that come out of it are these. Um, I mean, they, they they do reflect back on our ability to under, understand ourselves as human beings and our existential dilemmas as human beings. But I'm not sure then. I'm not sure quite how to fit that with the historical legacy, so to speak, and with the the lesson of the book. Um, that's not a very well-phrased um, question on, on which to end, but I'd like to hand over to, to the others, not to um, um, go on too long. We just <coughs> okay. going off. Yeah, we'll, go, we'll do one we'll after Okay, that's other better. Okay. okay, okay. So, my turn then. Okay, well, um, I think it's obvious that it's going to be very hard to do justice in a, in a brief commentary to a book that um, is so immense in its, in its depth and its scope and its ambition. Um, just to pick up a phrase that Mary didn't really make much of, I think, in, uh, to start with, but the idea of an integrated history of the aftermath. Uh, Reckonings presents itself as an integrated history of the aftermath, and I think that's a very important, well, for me, it, it, uh, I, I thought it was an important phrase. The idea that um, Mary is integrating these three parts are very closely integrated. It sort of sounds as if they were three separate things, but they're really not. Um, the book, it, it, it starts, as we know, by making sense of an enormous body of material on, on the mass murder um, of the Jews, but also of other victims. And of course, that's an incredibly complex story to tell as a set of events. That's, and that's just the first part. Then to trace the history of post-war justice, and then um, to talk about private memories uh, in, in part three. And the other thing that I think the integrated, the integrated thing is that it's a comparative framework, that, that we're not just talking about the aftermath in, in, in one of the German states, but two German states, and in Austria. And I think that's a very important dimension of the book as well. And, of course, post-unification in Germany. So, anyway, I, there are three things I'd, I'd like to talk about that I hope might help us with the discussion. Um, 
Firstly, that is rather, I think, recapitulating what you said. Um, the use of particular places as a unifying focus right through the book. Secondly, um, your comments on time and timing uh, as a very important feature of the post-war efforts and the failures to secure justice. That was something that struck me um, very strongly. And thirdly, and I think this will be leading on to your next book, actually, um, the idea of bystanders and the, the bystander society. So firstly, um, locations. Well, as, or, as Mary's already explained, um, Yeletz um, and, and also uh, Dembica, um, an area in southern Poland that was under the Nazi occupation, that part of the general government, is a very important focus, a, a, a specific place that figures right the way through the book. Mary analyzes the destruction of the Jewish community of Mielitz. Um, it started with a wave of terror in September 1939. It ended in March 1942 with the complete destruction of the community in that place with wholesale murder and with the dispersal of those who were not murdered at that point, um, who were selected for forced labor uh, for Heinkel. And I do think the emphasis on the, 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 the business interests and the, the, um, the, yeah, the, the manufacturers, the, the, the business tycoons and industrialists is a very important part of the book. So we have this account of Mielets and the victims of course are in the foreground but then you are zooming in on perpetrators, including this man Zimmermann, this Volksdeutscher that, that Mary's mentioned. And so we, we, we start with this, the, the events, but then through the book, because the way it's structured, the reader gets, we, it keeps recurring. The set, it's almost like the events are being unearthed and recounted and retold in, in many different contexts. So that um, the re, these reverberations, you actually get the sense because the book is so rich that Mielitz is only one strand of it, you keep feeling it's, it's sort of re recurring, unearthed, unearthed again and again in, in these different contexts. So, as Mary's mentioned, it features as a case study um, for contrasting judicial practices in East, in East uh, Germany and in West Germany. Uh, as she mentioned, the trial of uh, the East German citizen um, ended in a harsher sentence than for his uh, superior, who was tried in Freiburg. Um, so that is, is, is an important part of the, of the judicial process um, section. But then when we get to the analysis of private memories, we have, again, Mielat's figuring, uh, including, the, I have to mention this, there's an extraordinary episode where Mary interviews the children of uh, this man, Rudy Zimmermann, with whom Mary has felt some... Yes, I suppose a sort of understanding of how, of, of how he came to be what he was. But the interview, I thought, well, anyway, you will read it if you haven't already read it. It is it's an extraordinary passage. But then we <coughs> come back again um, when she discusses commemoration, because she contrasts the erasure of markers of the former ghetto in, in Dembitsa and the, and the neglected plot in Yelets, where there are some Jewish memorials. She, she, she has this sort of picture of neglect and erasure of the, the Jewish life in these places with this rather polished and intact gravestone commemorating the, the Volksdeutsche in the neighbouring village. And that's a very vivid contrast. 
So readers are left with the impression that the descendants of the Volksdeutsche in Poland are resisting engagement um, with the issue of perpetrators from within their ranks, and I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, but I think there's maybe also a tendency in the book to, to present present-day Poles as maybe tending to obliterate markers of former Jewish communities and sites of suffering. Maybe I'm not being fair here, but I just wonder if we could talk a little bit more about that. You know, the picture of the Holocaust commemoration as it is currently um, occurring in, in Poland, in present-day Poland. I mean, to me, it's it's a mixed picture because, of course, it's this is a hugely fraught area because of the outrageous um, efforts by the current Polish government to manipulate historical research and to um, manipulate the whole field and sites of remembrance too in the name of a much cruder and simpler story about Polish martyrdom and Polish heroism. There is that, of course there is. Um, but I do also get the impression that there are many Polish initiatives to mark sites of former um, ghettos and camps and subcamps where Jews were imprisoned who were not necessarily Polish Jews of all nationalities were imprisoned and worked to death and that there are efforts by academics but also by grassroots activists to protect these places to mark them and prevent them being erased and I just wondered if Mary might tell us more about her own experiences because I think you have also been involved in efforts to mark and commemorate in particular places that you've worked on. And I just wondered what your impression is of the current climate and the current, um, yeah, that, that whole thing of commemoration today in Poland. Okay, my second point was about um, the passage of time and timing. Um, Mary points out the very unhelpful disjuncture uh, between, for instance, the already very belated efforts in West Germany to bring perpetrators to justice and then the even more belated upsurge in public interest in the history of the Holocaust. There are these, in a sense, a wave of, of, of trials is not accompanied by an enormous public interest. That sort of comes later, and I think that comes across very clearly. And it, again, it, it challenges perhaps what, for me, has been quite a comfortable view of West Germany as a place whose political leaders and opinion formers did ultimately succeed in addressing the events of the Nazi past with some energy and commitment and determination. Now Mary, um, rather, you know, it's the glass half empty really. I mean, you, you, you draw attention to the inadequacies and the shortcomings and the failures and there's this terrible sort of urgency and, and, and despair in this sort of, it's, it's all too late. The energy with which perpetrators were pursued came late too late. And you also say, and maybe this is, you know, this is painful, but that commemoration has come to take the place of justice. Uh, that the attention paid to victims at commemorative events masks the question of the unscathed perpetrators. And I, and I do see that. I do see um, why you're saying this. I suppose, I just wonder what consequences um, this should have, really, for, for the historians today and for memorial site curators in Germany. Um, I mean, yes, late, too late, that is a very painful thing to, to grasp, um, and all the opportunities that were lost and were wasted. But there are still current challenges, aren't there, for historians and for memorial sites? Um, 
And it seems to me that there's a very positive and determined energy in Germany and Austria to tackle these challenges and to tackle the far right, to fend off the AFD, um, to find ways of, you know, nevertheless, um, to, to, to make something of this past and this history uh, for the future. So I just wonder if you had something to say about that. Finally, sorry if I'm going on a bit, um, the bystander society. Um, at the, there are various points in the book where Mary uses the term bystander to characterise individuals and the term bystander society to describe German society during the Nazi era as one in which, and I quote, people increasingly turned a blind eye to the violence and humanity of a system that in everyday life they themselves helped to enact and sustain. Now, I completely understand that Mary wants to get beyond the discussions about how far German society under Nazism was a Volksgemeinschaft, how far divisions and fragmentation persisted, and German society never became this constructive and mobilised national community. And I know that you want to explain how Germans who are not the targets of persecution behaved in ways that ultimately made persecution possible. But as you say yourself, the term bystander is, is slippery and difficult. Um, it has multiple facets and associations. A bystander is not directly involved in an action, but is an onlooker. A bystander sees what is going on, is a witness, and a bystander doesn't intervene. Those are already three quite distinct facets of this idea of a bystander. Plus, there are different variants even in this onlooking role. You could be an applauding bystander or a stricken bystander. You might have had some scope for intervention, you might have been completely powerless. So these are all complexities. And then there's the complexity because you're trying on the one hand to look at events and then at memories of events. In the event themselves, there may have been genuine bystanders for an instant, for a, for a particular situation. But later there are people who are telling stories about themselves that they might have wanted to have been bystanders or pretended to be bystanders where they, where they were much more than that. Anyway, so all this makes me quite, I suppose, confused sometimes about how, what to make of the term bystander. And um, I just wondered if you, I mean, part of me thinks you are deliberately keeping all these meanings and possibilities in play in order to break them down again and in order to bring out all those specifics that you're so good at pinpointing. Um, but sometimes I find I'm, I'm sort of swimming slightly with the, with the bystander idea. But that's a bit of a, perhaps a, a, a quizzical note to, to end on, but I just wanted to say, last Sunday, I, apparently Mary was in Berlin as well last Sunday, but anyway, I was in Berlin last Sunday, I took a walk in the sunshine, passed <coughs> by the memorial at Lollendorfplatz to the gay men, uh, the gay victims of Nazism. I called in at the Schwules Museum to look at the memorial stone to the lesbians who were persecuted and murdered, a stone that has not been installed at Ravensburg. I ended up at the bus stop by the Philharmonie, next to the Tiergartenstrasse 4 memorial to those murdered under the so-called euthanasia programme. And I watched people going by. I watched concert goers stop. They looked at the flowers, they stopped. They looked at the inscription, and the inscription ends with the words, Die Zahl der Opfer ist groß, gering die Zahl der verurteilten Täter. The number of victims is large, small the number of um, condemned uh, perpetrators, which I think is very much what uh, you've been talking about. And Mary's book certainly helped me to reflect on all these things, and I think other people will, I, I think, will find that too.
What can we say after all of that? <laughs> I suppose, as both Liz and Jane have said, I find it a difficult book to read, and not because I am not interested in the subject. I've also spent, I suppose, the last 25 years or so trying to write about it. And I find it difficult because it doesn't let us off any, in any easy way. Um, it doesn't accept any particularly comforting trajectories. It is a story which is essentially tragic, um, where justice was not to be had in the main in the lifetime of the victims. Um, and for many of them who did go back and testify at the Auschwitz trial, or indeed at the Ashman trial in Jerusalem, but especially in the trials in post-war West Germany and Austria, it was a humiliating experience. Mm. It was an experience of reliving their own traumatic memories, having to articulate them, and then to be tripped up and abused and considered to be unreliable witnesses, and to find themselves facing a, a concerted and pre-agreed set of testimonies by SS men um, and for the former perpetrators whom the court was inclined to agree to believe. And these, these were very difficult um, trials. And so the fact that a generation later than that, the 90s and the 2000s generations, have um, you know, gone out of their way to collect and listen to victim testimony is scant recompense for those who actually lived through it. Most of them are not around anymore to experience that. And so what's become part of public education for us and this sense of where society has moved to has, I think, not really helped those who went through it. And I mean, that's a very, very, I think it's both true and it's bleak truth, um, and it's a difficult one. And I think that that's also what makes this case of the Mielitz trial in East and West Germany unusual. Because Timmermann is tried under East German law. His testimony not only doesn't exonerate himself, it certainly doesn't collude with his boss, Walter Tormann, who is then tried in Freiburg under West German law. Mary told you what happens in that trial, um, where he's given you know, terribly lenient treatment. And, you know, there are different <coughs> systems, and the East German system does come out in many ways as being slightly more interested in pursuing justice than the West German one, perhaps because it was not democratic, perhaps because it wasn't so easily um, following the path of, you know, restored social classes who were keen to <coughs> attach to their <coughs> former status. And in many senses, you know, if you ever read Bernhard Schlink's The Reader, this is the antidote. You know, Bernhard Schlink's The Reader, in some ways, is a rather facile and heroic account of the young law students of the late 50s and their interest in war crimes trials. And he falls for all of the tropes, which are then a staple of... Um, the Auschwitz trial and its media coverage, namely that um, the woman he felt falls in love with could have only been a perpetrator because she is illiterate. And of course, when she does learn to read in prison, she reads all the right books. 
Um, and so the idea that the leaders of the Amitabh Scotland were well-educated lawyers with doctorates is sort of absent from that version of the past. And, and these, you know, Schlick could have read any of the history books which had been published in the previous 20 years before he wrote that and known that it was a misrepresentation of the actual past. Um, but I think the very success of the novel in some ways isn't just because it's written well, it's also the facile and comforting elements of it which um, helped, helped it to sell. And so I don't wish you bad sales because you're not being comforting. But I do think it's terribly important that we engage with this. And it took me back to um, something I've never forgotten, which was from Mary's inaugural lecture in UCL when I taught at Royal Holloway, which is, must be 20 a long time ago. some years ago. Well, years, years matter, and I'll come back to them in a moment, but you had a wonderful phrase to describe the 1968ers in Germany as proud to be ashamed to be proud to be German, which, of course, <laughs> you know, there's sort of double negative in the sentence, which is, you know, has a wonderful sense of irony and kind of waiting almost in the Germanic sentence structure for the irony to come. And in some ways, I thought that this book was peeling back some of the darker underpinnings of that sentence, which you probably weren't even fully aware of when you wrote it or spoke it. And I feel, I suppose, that this, is, this brings me to some of the things that Jane talked about. I felt when I read of Small Town near Auschwitz that the central protagonist was your mother because she was the best friend of the wife of this local Notable, and the crucial bit which connects that pre-1939 pre story, which is apparently ended by immigration to Britain, is that it, the contact is renewed after 1945, and it's renewed in a manipulative way in order to, as many Germans who'd had Jewish friends um, did do after 1945, it's renewed in order to buy reputation. And what's important, I think, in this story is not just that this was part of the self-styling and self-fashioning of this family after 1945 to prove, oh, we couldn't have been Nazis because we had such good Jewish friends, but it was also emotionally important to Mary's mother because I think it spoke to not wanting to be a survivor, not wanting to be a victim, and not wanting to be not German. And therefore, it depended on imagining that there was a part of German society that really hadn't been tainted by what had happened in the Second World War and Nazism. And that, I think, is a very strong part of many of those of us who have those sort of half-German, half-emigre families, as I certainly do. It's often part, an important part of our inheritance and probably part of our curiosity because we don't really believe the stories we were told. And so peeling back those stories and trying to find out what those relationships may really have been like becomes part of the slightly bleak progress which I think tells this, tells this story in the book. And for me, for me the Mielec's, um microcosm was also the, probably the most important bit of this story because in some sense, Tormeyer takes over the role of this uh, deeply duplicitous figure who manages to refashion himself. One of the weird things about a microcosm, 
And it's a microcosm in many ways. So Zimmermann is not only his junior. His father is also made the mayor of the village and provides the room in his house in which Tormeyer and his Jewish lover meet. And yet, after all of the testimony is over, after it's palpably clear that the main crime for which Tormeyer could be nailed under West German law, in which you have to prove the moral culpability of the perpetrator, i.e. killing Jews isn't enough, you have to have wanted to do so. You have to have exceeded any orders that you might have been given. It had to be active volition. And so murdering his Jewish lover was important and was murder under West German law because he didn't have to kill them. Indeed, he had almost certainly broken several rules, one of which was racial defilement in the SS. And therefore, he had a private and duplicitous reason for murdering them. And this murder, the extraordinary thing is, we don't know the woman's name. And that brings me back to the sort of final issue, which is that even when we get to the micro level, there are always these strange silences in the record. We never can actually reconstruct all of these stories from every angle. I mean, we want integrated histories, as Liz said, but I think they, they have this kind of quality that they always slightly slide away from us. I remember when I was writing about children's lives in Nazi Germany, um, I was very shocked when I realised that I had to anonymise all of the children who'd been killed in the um, clearance of psychiatric asylums. Because under West German law, their relatives were guaranteed legal privacy. And so, whereas the central preoccupation in the early 2000s was to name victims, was to commemorate victims by naming them, by giving them that simple dignity back. These victims couldn't be named because their relatives might have been ashamed, not that they were murdered, but that they'd ever been had relatives in that psychiatric asylum in the first place. And so under Pozornen and Dartenschultz, I had to invent pseudonyms for them, although I could have named I think that's another piece of that unfinished business that you were talking about and was talking about in terms of who it is who we name and this extraordinary, you know, as the issue of who is the survivor has um, spread and become um, almost all-encompassing, that there are actually still these pockets of complete silence or complete ignorance. And I think that is a, another of these troubling facets that we face. Um, I suppose the final thing I wanted to say is that this aspect of the personal story and the subjective voice, which you bring out so well, is profoundly disturbing, I think, for every kind of readership. And I found it particularly disturbing as I've watched the reception of my own work in Germany, which is that it is a society, as it is described, which is now saturated with commemoration. Um, there are more people, apparently, I discovered recently, wanting to endow Stolpersteiner with the brass memorials and the cobblestones to deported Jews than they can find deported Jews or indeed Jehovah's Witnesses now to commemorate. So it's almost sort of reached a saturation point. And yet, I think the more one brings out and explores the 
the multiple subjective dimensions of these events, the more one hits certain boundary lines, that this is a society which wants to commemorate its victims, which wants to damn its perpetrators as long as they can be relatively clearly identified, but it still has enormous difficulties exploring its own family pasts. And that's where the messy, subjective voices, which tie us to our own prior generations, and that's partly why I said explicit about what I think your own investments are in this, they also create enormous barriers to German society to think about its own transition. Um, and I found that certainly with my last book on the German war, which explored not <coughs> die-hard Nazis, but ordinary Germans who thought that they were <coughs> in the Second World War and tried to uncover what they had told themselves and their families in their letters and diaries, that, that this unpeels levels of discomfort in people. Um, I think this is still a matter of sort of cultural change and of generational change. Thanks. Thank you all very much. Um, should I just respond to those points and then we'll yes. yeah, please. Um, Jane asked the most difficult one, who is the ourselves who are shaped by this? And I think in some senses, in the most acute form, Nazism and the attempt to achieve justice in the wake of such incredible mass violence is an issue that we face and face repeatedly. And I'll say we as human beings in general. So not just those who are immediately touched by the specificities of the Holocaust, the particular communities of experience, connection, identification that they talk about, but in general... Um, and the issue of bystanding, looking away, not wanting to know, with whom do we not have empathy, what do we not want to know about, or where do we feel so powerless to act that we just think it's better not to think about it because we are powerless and we can't do anything. I think those are just general issues which face us all, um, and therefore inevitably this does affect us. Now, I may have overstated it in the last um, sentence or so, but I'm always acutely aware of ways in which... I, and indeed my children, are affected by things that happened in 1917. You know, I mean, if I think about my own family history, which Nick has brought in, I would not exist at all, physically, if it weren't for the First World War and the Second World War. In the First World War, my father's father went missing. He was, my father was Canadian, and he, was, he went missing, but under very suspicious circumstances. So he wasn't missing in action. He was never up on a Canadian war memorial as one of the people. He simply did not get on the boat home, having taken all his demob money. And the two suspicions about this are either that he went off with another woman, took on a new identity, founded a new family, <coughs> lived in Britain, and um, his supposed his former wife, not knowing if she was a widow or not in Canada, was left with small children. I'm going into endless detail on this, but the other, the other, um, the alternative family story is that the moment he'd got all his demob money, he was wandering along merrily along the banks of the Thames, and somebody just mugged him, took the money, and chucked his body in the Thames. And periodically, when I walk down the side of the Thames, I think, "Oh, my grandfather's bones are <coughs> on this, this sandy beach." But anyway, be that as it 
as it may, the net upshot was that my father, who never knew his father, um, was deeply depressed, had a miserable childhood, won't go into the details, but came to Britain in search of the possibility that his father might still be around and got stuck in Britain because the Second World War broke out. So had it not been for the tragedy of the First World War, A, my father would not have been a depressive this is family theory, and B, he would certainly not have been in Britain and stuck in Britain. So, Now, my mother is a product, I mean, the fact that they met was because my mother managed to get out of Germany in the 1930s and was over here, so she met my father, and product equals me. Uh, but again, my mother's psychology must have been so affected by things like the loss of this childhood friend who she made up with after the war, and who she always was desperate they'd broken off their friendship and she was always <coughs> desperate to make friends again to be accepted ne always felt insecure never felt fully accepted always wanted to be friends but felt there was a barrier and it was only after they'd all died that i discovered this extraordinary repression this secret that mm -hmm. she'd managed to repress of this nazi past of this man so in one sense yes i think i'm shaped by it i think probably all my own hang-ups and anxieties and interests and so on are all in some way shaped by that. That's not to say that history inevitably shapes what we do. I mean, my brother turned <coughs> into a research chemist for Phillips, you know, who would be interested in putting things in different glass bottles and watching them change colours? Who could be interested in chemistry when you've got German history that you could do? But, you know, so it doesn't actually I'm sure he work. says the opposite. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, but I do think somehow we're profoundly affected by the past. Jane, I probably wrote the last sentence wrongly. I probably didn't get the right words, but I, I, I think. Um, but I, mean, I can just say, I think yeah. we all struggle with the last sentences. I mean, yes. I've just struggled with one, and I think it's sort of you can't sign off. You no, know, you can't. And it's sort of yeah. banal, whatever you said yes. the last yeah. word. Indeed, and indeed. It just declares its yeah. own insufficiency yeah. in some way. So coming to Liz's points, commemoration of the Holocaust in Poland is unbelievably complex. And um, Benjin, which was the town, the small town near Auschwitz that I wrote about, I went back on a, a group of um, a six coachloads of survivors last summer. They've got survivors, second generation descendants from all around the world going back to Benjin for commemorative ceremonies, for laying of plaques, for um, having events around the time commemorating the big deportation when the ghetto was wiped out. And I went with this group and I was struck by the, the controversies. It was absolutely unbelievable. Um, there is a lot of local activism. There's one particular memory entrepreneur, a Pole, who's making a lot of money out of tourists coming from Israel and America and Australia and so on, but he is getting the memorial sites up in a very skewed manner in my reading of it because it doesn't correspond with what I know to be the history of the area, but he's doing it and it's on the map. Um, there was another guy who was absolutely furious about refusal to accept the wording on one of the plaques because of the current political situation and the way in which the Polish government is affecting the Institute for National Remembrance and constraining what you can talk about, bystanders being one of the issues. Um, and, and in fact, in one place, we never laid the plaque at all. You know, the coach tours were going around with the... Uh, we never got to... We just put flowers out on the gate to the railway station from which people had been deported to Auschwitz because there'd been such a row over the wording of the plaque because it's so politicised. And there again, I think, my issue about remembering victims but not pointing the finger of perpetrators came to me very... Um, 
intensely because I walked around the perpetrator sites and they are unmarked, completely unmarked. Um, the former Jewish sports ground that, where people were herded together and selected for deportation to slave labour or death. It, it's an old decrepit bus station, you know, it, it just, there is nothing there. Um, so I think it's an extremely complex story and I, I, um, I'd agree with you, it needs um, a, a very differentiated effort. But my Polish is not good enough. It, my Polish is non-existent apart from the, you know, the basic essentials that I needed to do the research, but I couldn't write a book about Poland and where I can about Germany. So. Um, the the commemoration taking commemoration of victims taking the place of perpetrators this is an issue on which our research team is currently working because i do think it's a really really significant <coughs> for memorial professionals as well as historians historians have been working on Taterforschung for a long time now but it's not reflected in that way in memorial sites so the way in which the historiography of perpetration has been going has been quite complex and interesting in terms of process and people becoming involved in acts of perpetration in situations and it's become a much more um, I think system focused rather than individual focused field and what's happened in memorial sites insofar as perpetrators are represented at all it's highly individualized it's pictures of individual people in SS uniform or individuals and their biographies as though you can understand perpetration and a system of collective violence through individual biographies and that is clearly better than nothing but it's not an adequate representation and that brings us very definitely to the issue of bystanders and bystander society which is also what I'm working on now which is the next book so it should hopefully be clearer then but um, I think there is a spectrum of bystander responses. You can only stay in the middle, if you think of a scale of one to five, um, you can only be at point three, neutral, impassive, for a fraction of a second as a bystander. If you witness something by chance, the chance of the coincidence of the moment, it's only for that moment that you can seem to be neutral and impassive. The moment it continues, you're either by not acting, effectively assisting the perpetrator side, if you're not intervening on behalf of the victim. And there are then, in my spectrum that I'm trying to work with in the back of my head, um, you can either show sympathy for the victim in some way, perhaps trying to give them some kind of moral support, some kind of courage, some indication of empathy in some way, or you can show that you're on the perpetrator perpetrator's side by smiling, by laughing, by humiliating, by jeering, by cheering on the perpetrator. So the, the next two, when you've moved out of the neutral position, the next two positions are showing empathy, sympathy with one side and the other, and the two ends of the spectrum are actually acting on behalf of one side or the other, intervening on behalf of victims or intervening, assisting the perpetrators benefiting from it. And so with that spectrum, I'm trying to um, work on understanding what kinds of social relations and social and political contexts make people more likely or more people more likely to act in one way or another. So the growth of indifference as Jews are progressively isolated within German society, for example, leads in that view to a lack of empathy with victims of deportations. They've been turned into others who are no no 
you know, they're not anything to do with me anymore, they're other, and what happens to them is not my business anymore. That's one of the issues that I think is important. Um, or when do you feel you should intervene on behalf of people? Is it when there is a personal tie? Or is it when you feel there's no risk to yourself? And is your perception of risks actually something that is more shaped by perceptions or more shaped by realities and experiences? You know, what are the perceptions of the time? Um, are there, so it's a very, very complex field, and I'm trying to get my head around some of the shifting aspects of it. But I'm beginning to think that Kershaw has this wonderful phrase in one of his books. He says, the road to Auschwitz was built by hate, but it was paved with indifference. And I thought for a long time, what a brilliant sentence. You know, so I quote it frequently and think, well, okay, I'm going to write the history of indifference. I'm actually coming to the view that indifference is wrong. He's wrong on that. It's not paved with indifference. It's much more complex and that when we look at Kristallnacht, for example, 1938, we have to understand far more about um, fear of intervening in a visible way, but willingness to assist individuals when it's not obvious in the days afterwards, willing to hide people, give them shelter and so on. I think it's much, much more complex than we know. So if that complexity is confusing in my little dribbles at it in reckonings, um, I think that's because I'm still working on the bigger picture on that. Um, Nick, just finally on the personal side, yeah. Uh, small town near Auschwitz, which Nick mentioned, um, and in fact Jane mentioned too, that was a deeply personal book because I didn't mean to write it at all. I was writing another book, I was writing Dissonant Lives, um, and in the process of writing Dissonant Lives, I just thought, hey, my mother's got a load of old letters in the loft, go up in the attic and have a look at them, could be something interesting. And just came across a curious little commemorative brochure that my mother's best friend, as she was supposed to be, um, she had written letters throughout her life, she was a great diary writer, letter writer. After she died, her son had collated extracts of these letters as a little commemoration to her and sent it around to different friends. So there were very childhood letters and there were letters as a teenager, letters as an adult. And I was just looking through it, you know, one of these wandering down memory lane kind of things, thinking about my mother and thinking about her life and um, just agonised reading the letters between my mother and her friend when they were teenagers. And then suddenly came across this letter, um, dated 12th of August 1942, saying, today, 15,000 Jews were deported. And I thought, where the heck was she reading, living to witness 15,000 Jews being deported on the 12th of August 1942? I thought, you know, I thought she lived in Germany. There were not 15,000 Jews deported. So I looked at the address on the letter, and it said... Six Poststrasse, Bensburg, and I thought, where the heck is Bensburg? You know, I know Germany quite well. It's not Heidelberg, Freiburg. You know, all my books and bags. You know, I just scoured my head. I was about to come in and teach here, um, and I thought, well, just bang Bensburg into the computer, see what comes up. And the first thing that came up, blow me down. I really felt like I'd been punched in the stomach. It was a physical shock. It came up Bensburg, the Germanized name for the Polish town of Benjin, renamed Bensburg after the Nazis, Landrat, and then the name of this man I knew very well, my mother's best school friend's husband, Landrat, of this town. And I thought, gosh, you know, I really felt 
so shocked and I thought, okay, well I've got to go in. I think I was actually teaching with Stephanie at theoretical issues seminars, I think Wednesday morning. <laughs> I thought, okay, Wednesday afternoons are free of teaching. It would take me a moment to get into the library, find out what the land part of Benjamin would have done with himself if he was there in the 1940s, early 1940s. Discovered that there really was precious little on it. So I just got a... Um, I, w- I just wanted to find out what he'd done for myself. I didn't want to write a book. I, but I couldn't lay it end to end. And... I think one of the professional deformations of being a historian is that unless you can line things up in a row and see how things relate to each other, you don't feel you've understood it. And the more I looked at his memoirs, which I managed to get hold of, I went to a, a, an archive in West Germany where he deposited his memoirs, the more I looked at that, the more I thought, uh-oh, <coughs> these dates don't match with the dates of his wife writing letters to her mother, so the Nazi the Nazi wife writing letters to her mother in Berlin. Um, and I kept thinking, this doesn't match. He said he wasn't there on that date. He was fighting in France. But she wrote a letter to her mother on that day saying, we were playing in the garden with our little baby. You know, So how come he was playing in the garden with his little baby in Ventsburg, Benjamin, on a day when he said he was away fighting in France? So the more I explored this, the more it bothered me and bugged me. And in the end, it just... Um, it seemed to me that it was such a typical story of West German repression and, in fact, West German getting away with it, which is what Reckonings then becomes about, uh, because it was um, denial of any responsibility, the unschuldigkeit, he didn't want to become guiltlessly guilty, and yet he was the guy who'd moved the Jews out of their houses into a poorer part of town. He was the guy who rewrote the boundaries, the area that Jews could not go out of, otherwise they would be shot if they were found in streets where they were forbidden. He was the guy who wrote to all his underlings across the sizable county, saying, could you please provide me with a report inside four weeks how far it has gone concentrating the Jews into small areas. He was the guy who oversaw the creation of a ghetto, initially a so-called open ghetto without walls, but you were shot if you left it, so effectively um, imprisoning people, and reduced their rations. And the consequence for me, or the consequences of that policy, for me, amounted to murder, because these people who were living in overcrowded, cramped conditions, unsanitary conditions, with too little food and no medical care, were dying, you know, and there are sad, sad letters from the ghetto and accounts from people there later, um, oral history accounts as well, of the conditions, and I thought, this man did it to these people, they would not have been there in those conditions, dying in that way, if he hadn't actually implemented all these regulations and made this happen. So I, I was just fuming, actually, when I wrote that book. Um, but, but it did seem to me that it was important because it was a low-level civilian administrator and it, I think that area had not been adequately brought out in the historiography or the praise that is always heaped on West Germany for coming to terms with its past, for putting perpetrators on trial, etc. So I, I guess the seeds of this book were in that book, mm. yeah. Well, I, I think I've sort of already in the earlier book, because somehow in, your, in the writing that I'm referring to here, you work out a lot as you... I mean, the, the sort of workings of your, of your approach are very clear to the person reading it, but you say, this is what I want to... This is what I'm talking about, and this is the concept I want to use, and I don't mean this, I do mean this. <coughs> yeah. This idea of, of um, trying to, to get into what, what is really inside people and, and the, you know, what forms of access we have to that. And when it's 
the particularly sort of um, anguished and traumatic version, which, I mean, I use that in relation to the perpetrators who live with a level of repression, which presumably is, is disconcerting to themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have little sympathy with them compared to, to um, you know, what, what victims um, went through. And there's some, you know, the example of Zael in your book, who had to live all the time with the knowledge, with, mm. with having watched his gay lover be most brutally done to death. Mm. Um, but, but nevertheless, the, you know, the, there's, a, the, there's, there's pressure for the historian, to, for you as a historian, to get inside and find the right way to get inside and to know what the inside is, which is part of your, of your project. Is, um, a, you know, it's a very prominent part of this book, but it's also in those, in those mm. other books. And I mean, some might argue that the historian shouldn't be doing that, but that's not mm. our job as historians. And you do use a phrase at some point or, you, you know, that, of... of um, of going beyond into a sort of a realm of psychological investigation which exceeds the brief of the historian. Um, and I mean, I, I entirely applaud your willingness to try to do that and to do it, mm. and to do it with such remarkable um, uh, success. But if, 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 if others would criticize you on that and say, no, that's not your job, mm. do you, have people said this to you? Had there have been any kind of response among historians to this work saying, you know, you shouldn't be doing this? No, yes, it's not um, your... I tell you, I think it. I, I, th I think there's a very easy way of justifying why it is absolutely crucial to history, because you cannot understand post-war Germany if you don't understand the way in which people both knew what they were doing was not what they were thinking. I mean, this this phrase about Immerdargeg and always against it. Mm -hmm. I used to laugh off and think. That's just self-justification. But actually, the more I think about it, the more I think you cannot understand post-war Germany without registering how people were brought to behave in certain ways that didn't correlate entirely with what they were thinking inside mm. and how they then tried to justify to themselves at the time and then later in terms of different moral frameworks what it was they'd done. And this goes back to what, what you were saying, Liz. The, the enacting the system, it wasn't just witnessing the people in their everyday behaviours were enacting racism, enacting anti-Semitism, saying, I can't be your friend anymore, excluding people from their social circles, and so on. So they were actually creating the society that they claimed to be against, and not thinking they were doing anything wrong at the time, because it was small steps. Just dropping Jews from your friendship circle was not a big deal. You know, it wasn't murdering them, but it created preconditions for those later.